welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. We've been doing a series uh, over the last couple of weeks that we've entitled The People of God Transformed. And uh, if, you, if, you didn't, if you happened to be away last week, uh, you didn't get the podcast, um, I really do this, but I would say I, I think last week's message really does form a, a kind of a foundation for understanding where we're going in this series. Uh, I think it would be worthwhile, if you never heard it, to grab that podcast and have a listen. I, I talked about virtue, which is, uh, as I defined it last week, the power of making right choices. These choices made consistently over time produce what I described as a second order of naturalness. You know how sometimes we say, oh, I do that, it's second nature. I don't even think about it. Perhaps another, perhaps a synonym would be automatically. I, I do it automatically. That second nature doesn't come by accident. You don't drift into second nature activities. They are, they are what happens when you've made a choice a thousand times, perhaps with difficulty at the beginning, yet on the thousand and first time, it is second nature, it becomes automatic. It's how we learn physical skills like flying a plane or playing the piano or dribbling a soccer ball or a basketball. It's how we develop intellectual skills like learning the times table or learning a new language or learning the laws of physics or logic. We don't think about this very concretely, but the reality is it is also how we develop the moral muscles of godly character. You don't simply drift into godliness. You don't stumble into into it accidentally. It has to be chosen repeatedly until it becomes second nature, as it were. And I explored that in detail last week. We talked about the fact that Paul exhorted Timothy Timothy to exercise himself unto godliness. And that exercise consists of making small choices in small places where possibly nobody sees, where maybe you don't think it's really important, but the reality is as we make those small choices in those places, something inside us begins to be changed choice by choice. Scripturally and historically, it's been recognized within the Christian community that there are certain activities, if you like, holy habits that when practiced with the correct motivation and when persisted in, serve to produce a certain kind of character, that is, a godly character. And this series is really about exploring some of those holy habits with a view to seeing the character transformation that the Scripture promises being made real in us as individuals and in us as a community. I thought that given that we're about to launch our annual week of worship, it would be apt to consider the role that worship plays in people being transformed. I don't think I would create much in the way of argument by saying that mankind is the zenith, the high point of creation. Perhaps a secular scientist might suggest that man's in that place simply because he's evolved to a higher level than all the other species. Those of us who believe in the Bible would want to say, however we might think, 
uh, about the creative event or process, we would want to say that the reason mankind is the zenith of God's creation is that they were created by God in a different way than everything else. And you can read about that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, where it says this, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And then in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 where it says, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Part of what it means to be a living soul created in God's image is that we are uniquely religious as a people. It seems that we're being created by God for God. As Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12 says, we've been destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. We are religious creatures by design. And never in all the history of anthropologists exploring ancient tribes have they discovered a tribe or a people who haven't in one way or another worked out that religious instinct by acknowledging and worshipping a superior being. Pascal, the famous French mathematician, scientist, and devout Christian made the comment that man has a God-shaped vacuum inside of him that produces a universal reaching out to worship a higher being. Some of you may have read the works of David Foster Wallace. He's a postmodern author of considerable acclaim, or rather was. Regarded by many as one of the most influential writers of the past two decades, he was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for his novel, The Pale King. He gave a commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005, three years before he took his own life in 2008 at the age of 46. In it, he eloquently and forcefully argued that everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everyone, he says, has to tap into real meaning in life, and whatever it is that you use to do that, whether it's money, beauty, power, intellect, or something else, it will drive your life because it is essentially a form of worship. Now, while it's clear that man is a worshiping being, it's also clear that he needs considerable guidance in the choice of his object of worship. Mankind by and through worship becomes assimilated into the moral character of the object that he worships. It becomes his or her standard of perfection. And as a result, we condemn everything in ourselves that doesn't meet that standard and we approve everything in ourselves that really does meet that standard. I was thinking about an example in, in terms of what I just said, and I, you can't help but think about the standard of beauty that is held up for particularly the woman in our world, and how many young women set themselves to achieve that standard, to 
focus on that standard and by focusing on it, effectively worshiping that standard. How they might approve those things in their life that they see reaches the standard. But for so many, the standard is so high, so difficult to achieve that it ends in self-loathing. And people hate themselves for what does not reach the standard of what they've placed on, in that object of worship. To become conformed to the image of our worship is the desire of the worshiper. And those very aspirations cause our character to become more and more entangled in that object of worship. The history of idolatry gives ample proof of this. Consistently, the character of every nation and tribe throughout the history of civilization has been molded and shaped by the character attributed to their gods so that it's easy enough to say, you show me the people's gods and I'll show you the people. Because warlike gods produce a warlike people. It's the way worship works. Let's look at this, though, from a biblical perspective, not just an anthropological one or a sociological one. What does the Scripture say? Well, in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8, and this passage is re repeated verbatim in Psalm 135, but it says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they, do not, but they speak not. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. And then the telling phrase, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. There is something about the object of our worship that begins to be assimilated into into our character. Alexander McLaren, the great preacher, once commented, men make gods after their own image, and when made, the gods make men in theirs. You see in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, where the prophet says, they, meaning the people of Israel, went to Baal Peor. Now, Baal Peor was the place, you, you might remember, where Balaam was hired by Balak, the king of Midian, to, to curse Israel. Um, that curse didn't work. God didn't give him permission to do that, and it all fell in. But what Balaam did do is he told Balak to send the woman among the people of Israel and to seduce the men, and he knew that that would, would lead to Israel being backslidden. And so that event happened at Baal Peor, and it becomes a notable point in Israel's history from that moment on. So Hosea says they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves unto that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. Now, another translation perhaps brings that out clear. It says they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of their shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. They were fashioned into the very thing that they were pursuing. You see it again in 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 15 where it says, And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies which he testified against them. And they followed after vanity and they became vain. The thing that you follow after, the thing that you focus on, the thing that you hold up as a point of worship, even though you might not use that language, as David Foster Wallace said, very few secular people would consider themselves to be worshippers, but in effect, 
That's exactly what they're doing. What you put in that place begins to fashion who you are. These people followed vanity, they became vain. Now, when you come to the New Testament, Paul describes man's tragic spiral downwards from a place of knowing God to a place of idolatry and moral degradation in Romans chapter 1. There's a few verses there that are worth reading, verse 21 through 25, very sobering reading. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men or man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. In this passage, we won't unpack it uh, a great deal, but Paul points to six things, as it were, six steps on this downward spiral from a people who knew God to a people who are lost in idolatry and moral impurity. And it starts with worship. It starts with a people that are irreverent. It says they did not honor him as God. That's the fundamental sin, the failure of or the refusal to worship the true God. All of the other things that run in this passage come from that fundamental fault. Worship is not just a tack on. Worship is the essence of our lives. And these people didn't worship the true God, and the implications of that failure start spiraling down. They go from irreverence to ingratitude where it says they wouldn't give thanks to God. Listen, our experience as human beings should at least be shaped by the recognition that we stand indebted to God for our very lives and our experiences. They are a gift from Him. And the rebellion that we read about and is expanded on in the latter part of this chapter doesn't begin with the clenched fist of atheism. It begins in the self-satisfied heart of one for whom the words thank you are redundant. The power of thank you, the power of gratitude is incredible. And, and at the very least, this passage is saying we should be a people unbelievably grateful. I think extrapolated out, you and I, the place we live, the time in which we've lived, the prosperity that we've enjoyed. And you say, well, Don, I haven't enjoyed much. Listen, you obviously haven't been to the third world if you uh, have enough gall to say that to me this morning. Sitting there in the warmth with the electricity, well-clothed, and for most of us, well-fed. Thank you is an incredibly powerful word. All of us understand the impudence of children who take and receive without thank you. And none of us will stand for it in our own children. And yet, day after day, goes by without the words thank you coming from some of us. I may have said this before, but, but it always strikes me as funny when I start the car, and it doesn't happen very often, but sometimes perhaps the light has been left on or, or the battery's gone flat, and I start the car, and ah, oh, nothing, rats. And it always strikes me as funny how in that moment I'm so angry that it hasn't started, but for the thousand times it started, I never 
once utter the thank you. Some of us in those moments, God, how could you do this? I, I need to be in a job interview. This is a crucial, how could you let this happen at this time? And we never ever have said thank you for the 10,000 times it started. We can be incredibly ungrateful. Irreverence, going to the next one, ingratitude. Thirdly, spiraling down, they become irresponsible. They become, it says, futile in their thinking. The Knox translation says they become fantastic in their notions. Having turned from God in irreverence and ingratitude, people indulge in speculative reasonings about where they've come from. It never ceases to amaze me that some secular people think I am completely idiotic for believing in a creator God, and yet they accept the fact that life has been seeded on earth from some alien civilization out in space. You want to talk to me about faith? You're very quiet. (laughs) Thank you. G.K. Chesterton once said this, when we, see, when we cease to worship God, we don't, we don't worship nothing, we worship anything. And the fantastic notions that come out of some, call, some so-called halls of learning really do require a great deal more faith than to look around and simply say, this has come from the hand of my Father. So we become irresponsible. Number four, we become ignorant. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Number five, inanity. You've heard the word inane. It just means empty-headed stupidity. And this is where it takes us, to empty-headed stupidity. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And the end result is idolatry because they exchange the truth about God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And it says they start to make images of beasts and birds. And as the chapter unfolds, you find them behaving like beasts, like animals, rather than people who were made in the image of God with the knowledge of God. They were fashioned into the very image of the things that they worshipped. These people didn't stop worshipping when they turned away from the true, true God. Mankind can't, since to be human is to worship. If you refuse to worship God, then sooner or later you'll find a false God to worship. The alternative to theism is not atheism, it's idolatry from a scriptural point of view. Now, as dismal as that principle of becoming like the object you worship is when applied to idolatry, it becomes an exciting promise and provision when seen from a Christian perspective because we are changed into the image of the God that we worship. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says, and we with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now the New Testament teaches that change in the life of a believer is needful, is desirable, is available. And this passage indicates that worship, coming before the Lord with an unveiled face, is an incredibly powerful instrument or catalyst in the process of this transformation. As I looked at this passage, I saw five things that this 
tells us about the transforming power of worship. Number one, it's progressive. The Bible says we are being transformed. It doesn't just say we were transformed and it doesn't say we will be transformed, although both of those things are true. When people come to Christ, there is a transformation that takes place, no doubt about it. The Bible talks about us being saved at that point. And, and, it, and the Bible says we will be transformed when he comes. We will be saved. But we are being saved, Paul says in another passage of Scripture. It's in three tenses, salvation. It's past, it's future, but it's present. And in the present, there is this transformation that's going on. We are being transformed. God doesn't effect it immediately, all at once. It has happened. It will happen. It is happening. Now, the second thing we've already commented on, but we reproduce the thing that we uh, are occupied by in terms of our worship. We will be transformed. We are being transformed, Paul says, into the same image. Whatever it is that you focus on in worship, you start to become like. I think that's why Paul told the believers at at Colossae, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on the things that are above and not the things that are on the earth. Focus, the focus of worship is incredibly important because you become like the thing that you worship. Now, the third thing I saw in this passage is this idea of we move from one degree of glory to another. It's the linking of worship with revelation. Kind of like a cycle where revelation leads to worship. Worship unfolds the possibility of more revelation. And we are taken from one degree of understanding, of insight, of clarity to another, from glory to glory. We, we sing a song here where one of the lines goes, goes like this. It says, the more we see, the more we love you. And that's the way worship works. As we behold, as we see one degree of glory, one aspect of who God is, worship happens. And in the worship, the platform is laid for the possibility of seeing something else as well. In John chapter 4, Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And if you read that conversation, it is essentially, at least outwardly, about worship. Now, the woman's concerns about worship were external, outward ones. Where and how should worship take place? Jesus, as this conversation unfolds, um, his concerns about worship are much deeper and more interior. He's primarily probing the question, who, whom do we worship? The passage has a great deal to teach us about these things, about worship, but there's one thing that strikes me as I read that chapter. It emerges out of the conversation, and it's the level of the woman's understanding. As the conversation on worship expands, her perception of who it is that is talking to her undergoes this incredible change. It starts from very lowly, almost an insulting level, and it culminates finally in a declaration that is as noble as any as you'll find in the New Testament. It starts off when Jesus engages this woman in conversation, she's surprised that A, a male is talking to her, and then beyond surprised that it's a Jewish male. And she says, you, a Jew, talking to me? And this conception of who it is that is talking to her, as I say, is, is 
almost at an insulting level. You can almost hear her spitting out a Jew because Samaritans and Jews didn't think well of each other. As the story unfolds, in verse 9 or verse 11, she calls him Sir. In verse 12, he's now starting to really probe dimensions in her life, and she's saying, you could not possibly be greater than Jacob, who, who gave us this well. He unfolds some personal details regarding her life, and in verse 17, she says, I perceive you're a prophet. By verse 25, she's saying, could this be the Messiah? Exclamation, uh, sorry, question mark. By verse 29, she says, this man is the Christ, exclamation mark. And it finishes with, he is Christ, the Savior of the world. You won't find a more noble declaration about Jesus in his earthly ministry than the one that comes from these downtrodden Samaritans. And it all happens in a context and in a conversation that has to do with worship. Because that's what worship does. It starts to change who we see. And as we see, worship comes. And the more we see, the more we worship. The more we worship, the more capacity we actually have to see. So we go from glory to glory. Her conception of Jesus is clarified and enlarged in the context of worship. That's what worship does. It takes us from one degree of glory to another. The fourth thing I notice is that it is a transformation wrought by the Spirit. We can't produce that change. It's His work, not ours. He changes us as we come into His presence to behold Him. It's as if the glory of His presence presses into our lives, impacting, shaping, altering, rearranging our character and thereby our conduct. You know, the, the word glory comes from a Hebrew word, kabod, and it literally means substance. It means weight or somebody who is, has weightiness about, about who they are. And it's that weight of his presence, the weight of his substance that presses down into us and shapes us as we come open-hearted into that glory. Let, let me try and give you a picture of what I'm trying to say. It comes out of the ancient world. The ancient English word for worship came from a word that meant worth, to ascribe worth to somebody. And the idea of worth comes out of the Greek language, and, it's, and, and it has to do with the idea of their, their currency, their coins. It was used to describe a coin that was worth its full weight. In the ancient world where minting, the minting process was in the early stages of development and the metal wasn't as strong as it would be in our processes, coins over time would wear down through use. They would wear thin and as a result they would lose some of their value. They would, through constant use, end up weighing less than when they were first minted. And so the people would describe those coins as worthless. Now, when it comes to our language, we use the word worthless to mean absolutely nothing. If we say of a person insultingly they are worthless, we mean disparagingly that they are worth nothing. But the ancients simply meant what the word said. That coin is worthless than it was initially. 
there has been a wearing process and the coin isn't now the same weight and it's worth less than it was in its original form. And after years of being handled, the face of the king or the Caesar minted into the coin could literally be worn down and even off. And friends, there are times in our lives where the image of the living God and the wholeness of our character can be worn thin through the activities of this age. And we end up becoming worth less. Not, not worthless in the sense of the way we would use it, but simply not what we were intended to be. Not what we were orig- originally. In the face of this wearing down process, God calls us to re-enter his presence that the glory, the weight of his worth can be repressed into our lives. So it's as if in the worshiping process, he has the ability to re-mint and restore the worth of our lives by pouring the weight of his character into ours. In that sense, worship is God's gift to us. Sometimes I hear people saying, you know, I just don't get this egocentric God who demands that everybody should worship him. What is it with God, you know? And, and they, they're talking out of complete ignorance to be truthful. I'm not suggesting to you that worship is actually man-centered. It isn't, plainly. He's the object of our worship, and it's the appropriate role of the creature to worship. But actually, worship is, in a way, God's gift to us. And it says something about his incredible generosity, his great love toward us. He isn't just requiring something from us. He's willing to interact with us and change us. And worship is the setting, the place where that can happen. It's wrought by his spirit in us as we come. And he remints, he presses the weight of his glory and his character into our lives. Now, the fifth thing I notice in this passage is that while it is the work of the Spirit to produce the transformation, you and I have a role to play, as we always do. God chooses to work with us, not simply act, act upon us. He always says, you come. Give me a lunch. Peter, get out of the boat. The lady reaches through to touch the hem of his garment. There's always a role we place. And the role we play in this is we come with unveiled face. True biblical worship requires an openness and a forthrightness, an acknowledgement of our need and a presentation of ourselves in his presence. This might be going too far for some of you, but I wonder that it doesn't imply that the rate and amount of transformation in our character, the rate and trans- of transformation that takes place, actually is strongly influenced by the worshiper. That daily sessions in his presence will produce daily assimilations of his character, but spasmodic sessions of worship produce an erratic result if any change at all. There is a role we play. There's a significant place that we play in this transforming process as we come with honesty, with forthrightness, with an unveiled face. Remember I said last week, virtue is about small, consistent choices and changes. It's about the exercise that we do again and again and again. I think that's what transpires in worship. 
you know what, you can go to the gym, I don't know, maybe the 700th time. You go through the, the rituals of lifting your weights or running on the, uh, on the treadmill or whatever it is that you do, and you aren't particularly aware as you leave that day of the amazing transformation that has transpired in you. It's just day 944 for you. But the reality is, if you were to go out and do some testing, from day one to 944, there has been huge change. It's just that you're not aware of it day by day. Some people come to worship and they say, oh, you know, well, I just lift my hands, I sing, I, I, nothing seems to alter. You'd never say that after a gym session because it's not what you expect. But in our context, something about us, maybe it's the way we as charismatic Pentecostal people have laid out experiences with God. We expect that unless that happens, nothing happens. We go away. You know, nothing happened in worship today. Didn't feel touched. Didn't feel changed. Must have been the worship team's fault. <laughs> you hear those kinds of comments. They just, they just didn't do it for me this morning. I won't even go there. <laughs> Change does take place as we enter in. Day by day by day. I don't think it's God's capricious will that controls the rate of change, but perhaps the constancy of our worship, the persistence and the willingness to come, even when I don't feel like it. Like I said to you last week, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. You know, David didn't always feel that well. David didn't even do that well on occasions. But he recognized there was something that he needed to do. There was something about the constancy of coming and blessing the Lord that produced significant change in him. When I talk about worship, there's almost always somebody who comes to me afterwards or makes some comment that I hear back. And, and I, I don't say that to say, don't you dare make those kind of comments, because I will hear. You know, I've got, like your mother, I've got eyes in the back of my head. I, I'm not saying it like that, but I, but I hear the comments back. Well, you know, that's all right. They come, they lift their hands, they sing. But worship is more than singing. Listen, I know that. I, I know that worship is more than singing, but I want to tell you something. It's not less than singing either. Read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. The Psalms were the worship manual of the New Testament church. And there was something about coming together in our corporiety and lifting our voices in song and in worship. There is something dynamic in the corporate worship of a people. Our postmodern society has gone down the individualistic track, and our worship looks much more like some kind of Eastern guru out on your own, you know, in a yoga position, don't let anybody bother me. I, I worship God on the golf course, or, or I, I worship God, I just do it alone. Well, good for you, but the Bible talks about the power of coming together as a corporate body of believers and singing and worshiping and entering into his presence. There is something about his glory that presses in on that. You can say to me, well, Don, that's just like a pastor talking, trying to gather a crowd. Well, if you want to say that about me, then, then you don't know me, because that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about biblical worship. That is not just me and Jesus, 
but it's about recognizing that together we have been redeemed and constituted as the people of God, the body of Christ, and that together we come to worship. And I'll tell you something. In the midst of that worship, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, tells us that the divine Son of God comes and presences himself in the midst of his people, and he also sings. Don't say to me, oh, it's just singing. It might be singing for you. But when we come together and we sing, we sing, we strum, we shout, we whatever it is we do, there is something in it in which the presence of God comes and dwells, starts to press in on our lives, to remint us, to change us, to show us things that lead to greater levels of worship, that lead to the power of transformation. I'm not just saying this to try and drum up a crowd for the week of worship, honestly. I'm saying it because as a pastor, as a shepherd, I long to see transformation take place in your life, in my life, in our lives. And you cannot simply ignore what the church for all history has said is effective in the way transformation takes place. You read history, and it says there is something about us coming together. Whether it's liturgically round the Eucharist, round the table, or whether it's singing and dancing and shouting, it can be all of those things. I, I worship is wider than the way we do it. But the reality is where you get people coming with open, forthright hearts, unveiled faces, as Paul says, beholding the glory of the Lord. Behold, we are change, a change wrought by the Spirit. And I want to encourage you, be a person of worship. Don't get into the trap of just thinking, you know, it's just outward, it's just external. It can be that, and that always is a challenge. But don't stop the outward and the external simply because something inside needs to have died. Or, or has died. Address what has died. Address the flame that has burnt low. But don't stop the outward, the external, because outward, external is the way that the inward is projected. You know, I, I, again, I've, over the years, people who stand arms folded, hands in pockets, and they'll say to me, you know, I, I once had a lady come and say, you don't know what's in my heart. I must have said something about lifting hands. You don't know what's in my heart, she said. You know, I, I, I'm worshipping in my heart. And I thought, okay. How does that stack up when your husband wants you to, you know, he wants to give you a hug and express some kind of um, warmth toward you and you have your hands in your pocket and, and say, well, I'm, I'm hugging you in my heart. <laughs> you know? I, if I was the husband, I'd much prefer she showed it on the outside. I mean, it's good that she's doing it in the heart. I wouldn't want that without that. But that without that is completely inadequate. You say, well, yeah, but, but that's not a good analogy, Don, because the husband might not know the heart of the wife, but God knows my heart. Yes, he does know your heart, and he knows how easily it gets entangled in fear of what you look like and the need for you to be cool or what other. That's why he confronts us. That's why he confronts us. An open, forthright availability to lift, as Lamentation says, my heart with my hands. I want to see us be a congregation of forthright, worshipping people. Not just simply so when I say that, people do it and I think, the power. <laughs> you know? But that 
we become a people who by that openness and that forthrightness, we become changed. That's what this week's about, coming into his presence, seeking his face, giving him due honor with reverence, with gratitude, and allowing his spirit to change us. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.